sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the Israel lobby's attempts at interfering in U.S. midterm elections. Also going to be talking about a potential cover up on the part of the U.S. considering its role uh, in uh, uh, the assassination of uh, de facto president of Haiti, Jovenel Moise. Also going to be marking the anniversary of Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty and uh, how this uh, imperialist uh, propaganda outlet factors into the Cold War uh, past and present. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, believe it or not, folks, the Trump collusion Russiagate claims that the Democratic Party peddled are still being dismantled and disproven in court. Despite the lack of comprehensive media coverage, Michael A. Sussman is on trial after being indicted by a federal grand jury last year that he lied to the FBI about who his clients were. Now, to refresh your memory, in September 2016, Sussman requested to meet with the FBI general counsel at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., and he did meet with them, and he provided them with evidence that allegedly demonstrated demonstrated a covert communications channel between the Trump Organization and a Russia-based bank. Sussman, who had previously represented the Democratic National Committee in connection with the alleged cyber attack of the 2016 campaign, falsely stated to the general counsel that he was not bringing these allegations to the FBI on behalf of any client. That lie led the general counsel to believe that Sussman was providing information as a good citizen rather than as a paid advocate or a political operative. The truth, of course, was that Sussman assembled and conveyed the allegations to the FBI on behalf of at least two clients, including a U.S. technology executive and the Clinton presidential campaign. In court proceedings against Sussman this week, it was revealed that Scott Hellman, currently an FBI supervisory special agent leading a team investigating cybercrime, said that he and a supervisor retrieved the thumb drives and other information passed to the FBI the day after the Baker-Sussman meeting, reviewed the secret communication claims, and quickly rejected them. Hellman said in his testimony about the data that he and another colleague analyzed that, quote, we did not agree with the conclusion that this represented a secret communication channel. Whoever had written that paper had jumped to some conclusions that were not supported by the data, he said, adding the methodology they chose was questionable to me, end quote. He said the claims of a secret channel didn't make sense to us, in part because it was implausible that the Trump organization would use its own name to connect to a Russian bank directly when it was allegedly supposed to be a secret. There was not enough data there to make the conclusion that there was any communication or the secret communication between the Trump organization and Russia, 
Hellman testified. And he wasn't the only person who doubted the veracity of Sussman's claims and the data that he presented. Special Counsel Robert Mueller, the FBI, the CIA, a bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee investigation, and Special Counsel to the Department of Justice John Durham and his team they all cast doubt on or have outright rejected this secret back-channel alpha bank communication between Trump and Russia claims touted by the Clinton campaign based on Sussman's thoroughly discredited documentation. And it's partially because the claims that Sussman presented in the white paper he gave to the FBI were actually just full of information found in internet searches with the word Trump in them. Hellman testified, quote, I did not feel like that was the most expeditious way. They were just looking for key terms. It didn't make sense to me. Hellman said Russia would have had a much better technical capability to hide such secret communications than a direct link between the Trump organization and Russia that you could find in an internet search. He said, I did not feel they were objective in the conclusions they came to. The assumption that you would have to make was so far reaching that it just didn't make any sense. And then partially because Sussman was hiding who his clients were. That also tainted the information. As Hellman put it in his testimony, the motivation of whoever is giving me the information is very important. Sussman's white paper pushed to the FBI was authored by opposition research firm Fusion GPS, which was hired by the Clinton campaign's lawyer, Mark Elias. Fusion was also responsible for hiring British ex-spy Christopher Steele, author of another discredited dossier that was supposed to destroy Donald Trump. Special Counsel Durham also said Sussman claimed to the CIA in 2017 that data to which he had access demonstrated that Trump and or his associates were using supposedly rare Russian-made wireless phones called Yota phones in the vicinity of the White House and other locations. The Special Counsel revealed the CIA concluded in early 2017 that the Alpha Bank and Yota phone information was not technically plausible and did not withstand technical scrutiny. You know why? Because Yodaphone, well, it is a thing, but it's simply a two-screened Android phone that was developed in Russia, and it is neither rare nor is it clandestine. Sussman, who also helped the Democratic National Committee handle its response to the alleged Russian hack of the 2016 election, denies any wrongdoing. He's pleaded not guilty to lying to the FBI, and we'll see how this trial goes in that regard. But all the evidence point to Sussman and the DNC fabricating this claim of Russia hacking the 2016 election, Trump having ties to Russia, all that stuff. Lie. We've been saying this, of course, but it worked enough to convince enough people in this country that Russiagate was real and Putin has to be stopped in Ukraine. As much vindication as this case against Sussman gives us in destroying the Russiagate mythology, I'm afraid, as we can see, the damage of that lie is already done. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content.
And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Miko Pellet, a human rights activist and author of The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine and Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation Five. Miko, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, it's good to be with you. And it's good to have you, Miko. Uh, the, the people of the United States uh, this week uh, went to the polls to take part in uh, primary elections. And there was uh, a different dynamic and different element, you know, an absolute maelstrom of uh, different issues happening in the country right now. But we also saw the involvement of uh, the, the Israel lobby or namely the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, otherwise known as APAC, um, that was actually funneling money into different races in an attempt to defeat progressive candidates uh, in what appears to be um, an effort to sort of push back on uh, uh, growing uh, uh, pro-Palestinian sympathies inside uh, uh, the Democratic Party. And I know in at least uh, uh, one situation there was that they, they use a, a super PAC or political action committee called the United Democracy Project, or UDP, and uh, gave $2.3 million uh, to the Democratic primary race in Pennsylvania alone, you know, just as an example. And so I was hoping you could sort of break down, Miko. I mean, uh, what has this uh, intervention, if you will, by APEC uh, uh, sort of meant, you think, for these races? And what do you think it implies about the whole issue of Palestine and how it's now being uh, perceived and understood inside the U.S.? You know, the, uh, the Israel and all its, you know, various, uh, organizations and agents and lobbies here in the U.S. have been investing heavily from, from, for many, many years now in, uh, not just national politics, not just sitting around in Washington, D.C. and lobbying, but in local politics. They understood very long ago, very early on, that America, all, all politics is local. So you're going to see them in the school boards trying to, trying to, uh, impact school boards. Uh, elections, uh, city council elections, mayor elections, of course, state representatives, state legislatures, and, and, and onwards. They invest an untold amounts of money, millions upon millions, in order to get it right. In other words, to get it right from their perspective, because they cannot afford to have American politicians, even at the very local level, pursue an agenda that is not, that is contrary to their, to their uh, interests. As soon as Americans realize, as soon as American politics realize that they cannot, that they can no longer associate themselves with Zionism, as soon as they realize that Americans demand that Zionism be clearly defined as the racist, violent, hateful ideology that it is, that's the end of the game for Israel. That's the end of the game for Zionism. So they can't afford to have that happen. They have to invest and invest and invest in every election, in every city, in every school board, so that this doesn't happen. And they've been doing this, of course, for a very, very long time. 
Yeah, and particularly with these primary races uh, this week, the the involvement of this group, the United Democracy Project that was created by APAC uh, just a few months ago, um, really highlights how serious they are about this. They've spent $2.3 million in Tuesday's primary races alone uh, to try to win uh, a congressional seat in Pennsylvania, which they actually did not uh, because their candidate that they backed, Steve Irwin, uh, lost to the progressive state representative, Summer Lee. Summer Lee, uh, it needs to be noted, uh, is a grassroots candidate. She has spoken in support of uh, setting conditions to uh, uh, you know, to U.S. Uh, to the U.S. aid to Israel, uh, if not just ending it altogether, she has talked openly about of atrocities Israel commits in Gaza, drawn parallels between Israeli actions uh, and the shooting of black men in the U.S. And you know, I do wonder about that nexus between the racism of the Zionist project and the racism of the so-called Democratic project here in the U.S. and how the progressive candidates that a lot of uh, these uh, UDP-supported uh, uh, pro-Israel candidates are running against could be Black people, Black women, uh, and people who are advocates for uh, social and racial justice, not just here in the U.S., but certainly calling out the parallels of apartheid uh, Israel. So uh, where do you think that that nexus is in this fight to uh, raise this issue of the need to end this Zionist project? And how do you think that that factors into UDP's strategy and who to go after in these races? You know, traditionally, the the ADL, the, you know, the Anti-Defamation League, which pretends to be a civil rights organization, but is really a fascist terror-supporting organization, tried to promote itself, or actually in the beginning it actually was, I think, an organization that dealt with, uh, you know, fought racism. And so they, uh, they've been aligning, they like to align themselves with uh, uh, the African-American struggle. They like to align themselves with struggles of justice. But of course, they can't because they're racist, they're Zionist. So now I think they're realizing that this trick is not working anymore. They can't align, align themselves anymore with the pro-justice um, candidates, with pro-justice campaigns. So they'll go somewhere else. They need to survive. They cannot allow the Zionist project to be uh, placed in doubt in the United States. They cannot allow candidates who are willing to say things like conditioning aid to Israel with Israel's uh, compliance with international law and so forth. They can't afford to have people like that in places of power, in places of influence. And again, they start with city council. Uh, they start with school boards. They are there in the local community, in the communities, making sure that their agenda is 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 being is being pushed forward, and that it's pushed push, being pushed forward by people that they can trust. So there's no end to the amounts of money. There, it's it's an endless cachet of money that they are, that they have, and that they are going to spend because this is a survival issue. If you had more members of Congress that were willing to vote against aid for Israel, if you had members of Congress, members of of um, state legislatures that were willing to support sanctions against the state of Israel after the murder of Shirin Abakli, for example, a well-known journalist, 
who were targeted and assassinated, clearly, according to all the evidence. If there were people in, in places of power, if there were legislators who were willing to call for an absolute, you know, for, for sanctions, severe sanctions against the state of Israel, that'd be the, you know, that'd be the beginning of the end. That's the, once that wall is cracked, there's no, there's no mending it. So they can't afford that to happen. So they're going to invest and they're going to continue to invest and they'll invest more if they need to. And they will do everything they possibly can. And it's up to us, those of us who believe in justice, those of us who care for justice, those, those of us who see the parallels between, uh, uh, you know, what happens to African-Americans in this country and what's been happening here for, for so long and what is happening uh, to Palestinians. Those of us who see that need to put a stop to it. We're the ones who need to stand up and, sit, and say no. We're not going to vote for these politicians. We don't care how much money you have. We don't care how many airtime you get. We're not going to vote for a politician, even on the very local level, who identifies with Zionism, who supports Zionism. Zionism is racist. Zionism is hateful. Zionism, like anti-Semitism and white supremacy, need to be put away. Yeah, and you know, Miko, as as someone who has been a part of uh, the Palestinian liberation struggle for a long time. I'm wondering if you've noted uh, any kind of shift in the uh, attitudes around Palestine in the U.S. and the West. And the reason I ask that is because it's my uh, perception anyway that a lot of these uh, old tropes that, uh, uh, you know, Israel and their supporters in the U.S. Uh, use and a lot of the narratives they have used historically, they, they just don't seem to uh, fly the way that they used to, at least maybe not as strongly um, like this, this idea of conflating Israel uh, with Judaism itself or this, um, this you know, prohibition against you know calling Israel what it is, which is an apartheid state, or accusing them of genocide uh, against the Palestinians, or anything that it could be construed as uh, sympathetic to the Palestinian flight has been you know basically verboten in in U.S. politics for some time. And I just wonder if you feel like there's been any shift in that recently, uh, because I feel like um, we wouldn't see uh, you know APAC involved uh, in these elections if uh, they didn't feel there it was necessary to try to, you know, uh, try to regain control of the narrative, if you will, and control the, the politics? You know, I think it's an ongoing struggle. I mean, uh, more and more people are now not, are now, have now shifted from speaking about um, uh, rejecting the occupation to rejecting apartheid. And what the amnesty report that came out in February this year told us well, told the people who weren't, you know, weren't aware yet, is that the state of Israel, all of it, from its very inception in May of 1948, has been and continues to be an apartheid state. In other words, engage in a crime against humanity. Apartheid is, is, is recognized as a crime against humanity. So, so this is now a very important shift. And it's a very dangerous shift for, 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 for the Zionists and for the state of Israel. So they're shifting their tactics. So now they're going to invest more in this and invest more in that. I mean, they've got think tanks. They've got, um, they've got armies of, of, uh, of people who are paid a salary to do just this, to look at what's out there and adjust the tactics. So look what's out there and see what needs to be done, which, which, uh, which candidates they need to support, which candidates they need to strike down. What the mood is among in, in, on college campuses? What the mood is in the churches? What the mood is in the black churches? They've invested heavily in the black and Latino churches. 
I mean, they're, continue, they're investing heavily in those churches to make sure that they view Zionism in a positive light, in a light that aligns, that is aligned with their values. And of course, it's all lies because Zionism all, can only can, is only aligned with people who are racist and fascist and supremacist. But they're very good at this. They are very, very good at this. If you listen to their ambassadors, if you listen to their spokespeople, they are trained to do this, and they do this very well. They will convince you that the world is flat. They are that good. And if you're not prepared to confront them with facts and data and, uh, and a real sense of rage, I would say, for, for, for what Israel does, then, then they're going to continue to win. So we have to be a lot more determined to make sure that our candidates are capable, that our candidates are able to be elected, and that those that are on the on the fence, and there are many of them that are on the fence. I mean, many politicians in America couldn't give two cents about Palestine. They want to get elected. Whoever gives them the money, that's who they're going to go for. So really, it's up to us to make sure that we are there to confront, and we are there to, you know, to, to fill up that space so that these politicians can get elected and these politicians can pursue a pro-justice, uh, pro-human rights uh, agenda, not only in Palestine, but, you know, here in America and everywhere else. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, particularly when you look at the fact that uh, the U.S. sends, you know, three and four billion dollars a year of uh, uh, taxpayer money to Israel to support that uh, genocidal project. And, you know, of course, uh, Miko, this is also happening not long after the assassination of Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, who was working for um, Al Jazeera. And I feel like even that uh, sort of factors into uh, a trend and a history of Israel targeting journalists and uh, uh, really anybody who's trying to expose the truth of uh, uh, what happens here. So I don't know. I just feel like sort of the, the, the media aspect of things, uh, uh, how uh, propaganda is weaponized to sort of skew the truth about what's happening uh, in Palestine. And in reality, this is what, you know, groups like APAC and these other uh, super PACs, this is what uh, they're trying to protect. I mean, this uh, uh, this this settler colonial order in Israel is is um, certainly uh, what they're trying to maintain and, and, of course, would like to continue Washington's support of it. And so how do you sort of situate Shireen Abu Akleh's uh, death uh, with this whole um, domestic election issue in terms of how, you know, we're considering uh, uh, the question of Palestine? I think her assassination and um, the images that came out from Jerusalem during the funeral procession, where the funeral procession was viciously, brutally attacked by by, um, by uh, militarized Israeli police, um, just demonstrates that Israel feels like it can get away with murder. And it is getting away with murder. Israel, the, the four or so billion dollars a year in foreign aid is not in any danger. The millions that are coming in through 501c3s and you know tax-deductible donations that go to Israel are really not in any danger. The danger is in the margins. The danger is that more and more people, more and more people, not enough, but more and more people are looking at this and going, wait a minute, how, why did they assassinate this, uh, this journalist and what is actually going on here and how do you treat people this way? But this is on the margins. So on the one hand, it shows us that there's, Israel feels completely confident. On the other hand, you're right. There, is, there are more and more people that are looking at this and saying, wait, why are we giving $4 billion to this? Um, and again, like I said, shows like yours and you know, activists and, and people who write and speak and those of us who, are, who, who have a conscience and have a heart need to work harder, organize more, uh, unite uh, better, 
so that people in America come to vote. They don't vote for, for candidates who associate themselves and align themselves with Zionism. Uh, Well, we thank you so much, Miko, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about developments in the investigation into the assassination of de facto Haitian President Jovenel Moise. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Kim Ives, editor of the English section of Haiti Liberté. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Jackie. Absolutely. And Kim, of course, uh, the country of Haiti still reeling from the 2021 uh, assassination of its uh, de facto president, Jovenel Moïse, a presidency that was fraught for a a whole lot of reasons. But uh, uh, someone who was really only able to remain in place because of his support for Washington, not unlike uh, a succession of uh, leaders of Haiti, which has had a serious, uh, a devastating impact on the plight of its people. But there is uh, information uh, that has been revealed that may imply that there could be uh, almost a kind of cover-up on behalf of the U.S. government in terms of their possible uh, involvement in Moise's assassination. And I don't think there's anything necessarily like a smoking gun here, Kim, but uh, so we could sort of break down, you know, what these new revelations uh, uh, look like and what it implies about uh, the possible involvement of Washington? Well, uh, as you said, he had been doing Washington's bidding, particularly as relates to Venezuela. Uh, He was sort of the hood ornament on the tank that uh, Washington was driving down Maduro's driveway. And he uh, had flipped, really, on Venezuela, which had provided Haiti with $4 billion worth of gas between 2008 and 2018. And then in 2019, uh, January, he uh, uh, said Maduro is is not legitimate. And uh, the Haitian people, in fact, were, were, were aghast and indignant and poured into the streets, and it really helped fuel a lot of the uprising of 2019. In any case, it seems that uh, he started to realize, according to uh, one of our sources, that uh, Washington was was not really going to help him or back him enough to keep him in power and started to try to mend fences with Maduro. And uh, worse than that, even Uh, make uh, outreach to uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia. And uh, he uh, therefore apparently may have been on Washington's uh, list of removal, much as uh, happened to uh, President Diem in Vietnam in the year uh, 1963. Uh, The U.S., which had 
basically installed him, ended up machine gunning him in the back of a car uh, because he was uh, no longer helpful. Uh, same thing happened to uh, the dictator in um, uh, Dominican Republic across the border, Trujillo, in around the same time in 61. Uh, so uh, the U.S. has a has a history of uh, taking out people that were its one-time allies. And uh, we question whether that may be what's at play now due to the way uh, the U.S. is taking control of the uh, murder investigation. Yeah, and there, you know, I think people had questions about why the U.S. is taking control of the uh, investigation into Jovenel Moise's murder because uh, uh, the Justice Department successfully sealed evidence last week in its prosecution of uh, the Colombian mercenary uh, Mario Antonio Palacios Palacios, who was one of the gunmen uh, in in the murder uh, of Moise. You know, the, the fact that the Justice Department is even involved in this, I think, raised questions uh, among people who are wondering how deeply is the U.S. government involved uh, in uh, the assassination of Jovenel Moise. So how can you tell us, you know, why the U.S. is getting involved in, you know, prosecuting Colombian mercenaries uh, and, and how deep could this possibly go? Well, um, to go back to uh, the, the period of 2018 and 19, uh, the, as I laid out, there was the question that he was starting to put out feelers uh, to uh, mend fences with uh, Nicolas Maduro and to uh, get to know Vladimir Putin and see what kind of deals he could get there. Uh, but there was further the fact that essentially the... Petro Caribe project, which was the solidarity project that Venezuela did with Haiti back in 2008, provided the country with a spigot of cash. Essentially, Haiti was able to sell the gas that Venezuela provided cheaply, and uh, they were able to keep 40% of the revenues for uh, uh, 25 years at uh, 1% interest in a fund called the Petro Caribe Fund. And so this helped the Martelly government. Uh, Michel Martelly was Chauvenel's uh, mentor and predecessor. And uh, basically, they did 94% of their projects, that's according to Martelly's prime minister, on the basis of that Petro Caribe money, a lot better than what the IMF or World Bank would have provided, and, you know, with practically zero interest. Uh, but that all came to a crisis crashing halt when Trump came into power and uh, slapped big sanctions on uh, Venezuela and made it impossible uh, through the money transfer systems, which are controlled by Washington in the region, uh, for Haiti to even pay for the gas. So the Petrocaribe spigot was turned off. And so now Jovenel, who had made lots of promises, had to turn to the bourgeoisie of Haiti, people like Reginald Boulos, Dimitri Vorb, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and ask them to ante up to pay for the projects that he had in mind, like 24-7 electricity throughout Haiti. He was from the pe peasantry. He was from the countryside, and he wanted to bring the countryside 
these things he'd promised. Well, the bourgeoisie said, what do you think? You think we're working for you? You're working for us. And he went to war with them. Now, unfortunately for Jovenel Moise, these guys are closely connected to Washington. Some of them are even U.S. citizens born in Miami or New York. And so suddenly he was at war with the um, allies and uh, business partners of Washington in Haiti. So these two factors, the fact that he was at war with Washington's proxies in Haiti and the fact that he was starting to pull back from playing the role of a front man for the anti-Venezuela campaign, both, I think, contributed or are circumstantial evidence that Washington was looking to ditch him. Plus the fact that he was just provoking demonstration after demonstration, even during COVID. And uh, this was uh, meaning he wasn't effective enough in really uh, keeping the lid on Haiti. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to raise, as you did, Kim, the role of the um, uh, a national bourgeoisie in Haiti and how they factor into politics there, because that is an element, I think, that is all but invisibilized when people talk about Haiti, at least in the U.S. and the West. People, you know, may be familiar with whoever the leader is and see them in pictures and images and videos and things like that, but are completely unaware of this whole other layer of power with, within the country that is uh, oftentimes helping to facilitate the instability. And sort of bringing it to the current moment, uh, Kim, you know, how, how are things continuing to unfold in Haiti at this point, I mean, uh, the country uh, under the leadership of uh, Dr. Ari L. Henri, um, I, I suppose technically the, the country is still in a transition moment. It, uh, uh, I know you all recently just published a piece on Haiti Liberté also talking about how, you know, uh, France, Canada and the U.S. Uh, may be getting a little antsy in terms of how this transition is playing out. It's just how, how um, are the ripple effects of Moise's assassination still sort of impacting things in Haiti today, uh, particularly, you know, how's it impacting people's conditions? Well, one of the other um, uh, circumstantial evidence pieces is the fact that Ariel Henry was deeply implicated in the assassination. Uh, He was uh, making phone calls to the guy who ordered uh, Mario Antonio Palacios Palacios and his uh, four or five colleagues to machine gun uh, Jovenel Moise in his bedroom. And uh, this uh, fact, uh, he was speaking to him in the days prior to the assassination and uh, on two occasions, uh, mounting the seven minutes of phone call, uh, it, three hours after the assassination. So uh, he claims he doesn't remember the call. Can you imagine? You can't remember a call that you're having with somebody at, at, at four o'clock in the morning and uh, for seven minutes. And he's, you know, just totally put up a wall. And the U.S. nonetheless was the one who said he's the guy who should run Haiti. So uh, essentially, there are what they call the Battle of the Accords. The Accords are basically different groupings of the Haitian political class who have gotten together and each made their own uh, blueprint, their own roadmap for how to get to an elected government once again. And essentially, the Accord of Ariel Henry and his Confederates is called the Musso Accord, M-U-S-S-E-A-U. 
Museau, given for the uh, area where it was signed. And the principal, uh, I won't go into all the accords, but the principal contender against him is a thing called the Montana Accord because it was signed at the Montana Hotel. And uh, these two groups that are vying for power are essentially the same politically. The uh, heads of the Montana Accord uh, were involved, were among the leaders uh, and officials in the coup government afterwards, uh, the coup against President Aristide in 2004. And uh, so it is nothing politically different, even though they've gotten uh, uh, a lot more press uh, from the New York Times and even Democracy Now! and so forth, uh, saying, you know, they're the democratic alternative. In any case, uh, there's a battle between these two accords, these two uh, roadmaps, if you will. Ariel Henry is holding on. He's not budging, despite the fact of outcry about his involvement in Chauvenel's assassination and blocking any investigation into it. And uh, meanwhile, the Montana group is continuing its march to try to take over. Now, they have some support in the U.S. foreign policy establishment. Uh, people can go look on the site of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, which uh, is betting on the Montana Accord. That was the title of their piece back in February, uh, saying, you know, the Montana really is the way we should go. And there was another U.S. diplomat called Daniel Foote, who was briefly Washington's emissary to Haiti, who resigned after the Del Rio debacle. Uh, but he was also pushing the Montana Accord. But basically, Mainstream Washington is sticking. You know, they don't like to change horses in the middle of a political crisis because you can get an outcome like Jean-Bertrand Aristide, a revolutionary uh, uh, anti-imperialist priest. Uh, that's what happened back in 1990. So they're sticking with Ariel Henry as long as they can. But I think they have Montana in reserve. And right now, those two groups, after three months of uh, not talking to each other, uh, are sitting down. And uh, but a lot of the left wing of the Montana group, people who are brought in again as window dressing because the the real control of the Montana uh, Accord is in the hands of the right wing. They are pulling back. And uh, for instance, this week we have a an interview with a guy called Oxygen David, who's been a long time uh, sort of uh, collaborator of Haiti. Liberté and uh, is a very strong anti-imperialist voice in Haiti who basically pulled out of Montana saying, listen, you know, this, this was supposed to provide a Haitian solution, but it's just taking uh, orders from uh, the U.S. Embassy in Haiti and uh, Canada and France. So uh, that's really the situation. We may be moving to this other Montana Accord soon. They'll probably let Ariel Henry go as long as he can, or maybe he will prevail. But in any case, uh, the U.S., Canada, and France, the overlords of Haiti, are getting very impatient for there to be some sort of election uh, to give the you know uh, veneer of independence and sovereignty to Haiti, even though it is uh, 100% a neo-colony. And just on a last note, they've in fact even uh, have a thing called the Fragility Act, which they've uh, rolled out uh, in the back rooms of the State Department. Uh, and the three countries that they're targeting are Mozambique, Libya, uh, Papua New Guinea and Haiti. And uh, this is really to a new level of taking control of their uh, 
uh, economies and one of the first economies and political systems. And one of the first things on the agenda is dealing with the gangs, the uh, uh, revolutionary lumpen proletariat in Haiti. They really want to tamp this down and and, uh, seal this off. And so this is uh, what we can expect in the coming months. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Kim, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how U.S. propaganda impacts the Cold War, old and new. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dan Kabatlik, the author of No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Dan, uh, this month marks 71 years of Radio Free Europe slash Radio Liberty, which was one of uh, many platforms that were basically started by the CIA and, and the U.S. government as uh, imperialist propaganda mills, I think, to, to, to put it in a way. And, you know, you, you recently uh, published a piece about Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, I believe in RT, not only going into the history of it and, you know, sort of what its intended use was, but uh, how that um, sort of orientation uh, around information, if you will, sort of trickles down to today. And so to begin, Dan, I was hoping you could help us understand sort of the roots and origins of Radio Free Europe, Radio uh, uh, Liberty, and why you think it's relevant uh, that this kind of platform is still operating. Yeah, so it was uh, founded by uh, the CIA and Alan Dulles, who was heading the CIA in 1951. It was fully funded uh, by the CIA uh, between 1951 and 1972 without congressional knowledge or authorization. So this, in fact, uh, for 20 years was, uh, you know, what's known as a black op. It was a covert operation. You know, American taxpayers were funding it, but they didn't even know it. And the goal of uh, these two radio stations you mentioned, which we'll just call Radio Liberty, um, the goal was to broadcast uh, news. They call it news. We, we, we would probably call it propaganda into the East Bloc and Soviet Union in order to uh, encourage people to resist and oppose their governments and ultimately to topple communism in the East Bloc in the Soviet Union. This was the the explicit purpose of Radio Liberty, and I I cite a number of of sources for that. Again, if you go to even Radio Liberty's uh, website, they're pretty open uh, about that, that that was the goal, this regime change. Finally, Congress did learn of the existence of the, or, or of, the, the, of the fact that the CIA was funding this without their knowledge 
ended the CIA funding in 1972, but then just started funding it directly uh, through Congress. And and, uh, to this day, it exists, these radio stations. They claim to serve, if serve is the word, uh, to reach 37 million people in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, and Russia. And I would say, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, it continued to exist and it continued essentially to follow U.S. uh, foreign policy operations. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union, well, even before that, really, uh, you know, when the U.S. got involved in Afghanistan, uh, beginning in mid-1979, in the 80s, uh, Radio Liberty started broadcasting in Afghanistan uh, and in other places in the Middle East. Uh, so it essentially has followed wherever the U.S. war machine goes, it follows as well. But I would say after after the collapse of the Soviet Union and had a bit of an existential crisis, because, again, its main raison d'etre was to destroy the Soviet Union, and and it claims that it helped do that. Um, I'll leave it for others to decide whether you know that claim is is true, um, but it did have a bit of a, a of a question as why it continued to exist. But of course, uh, once the Cold War heated up again, pretty quickly, and now has reached a boiling pay- point with the uh, war in Ukraine, which is clearly a proxy war against Russia. Radio Liberty is back, you know, feeling like it has a real purpose again, and that is to undermine Russia itself, you know, and and which is an interesting fact. You know, there was a quote by someone in the former Soviet Union who said they aimed at communism, but they hit Russia. In fact, I think we now know, if we ever had doubts, that, that they were aiming at Russia all along, right? And they continue to aim at Russia. And so Radio Liberty now is operating as a propaganda platform to try to now undermine the government in, in Russia. And as if the origins of uh, Radio Free Europe uh, were not a portent of things to come uh, or a foreshadowing of what's going on with this proxy war in Ukraine against Russia, back then when the CIA secretly funded uh, the uh, um, uh, origins of Radio Free Europe, it was also backing a fascist military rule in Greece, as opposed to uh, the Greek communist government, which was preferred among the people in Greece. Because why? Because of their their fight against the Nazis. And here we are once again with Radio Free Europe providing uh, not just ideology, ideological cover for the proxy war in Ukraine, but also ideological cover for the fascists in Ukraine. And is Radio Free Europe doing the same thing now that it was doing then with the uh, then collapse of the Soviet Union and then Russia? Are they keeping detailed records of what they see and hear and reporting to the CIA what's going on in Ukraine now? Well, I guess we don't know for sure, but I would suspect so. I think, you know, I think you can, you know, safely conjecture that they continue to be uh, really a wing of U.S. intelligence abroad. 
but you raise a good point. I mean, you know, Radio Liberty, as the name suggests, or Radio Free Europe suggests, uh, they claimed to support democracy and freedom in Eastern Europe and Russia. But, of course, what they, you know, were, I guess, ignoring or denying was that at the same time, as you say, the U.S. was supporting fascist forces in places like Greece, again, to prevent a communist uh, uprising in Greece, as you say, the communists and partisans throughout Greece and throughout Europe had a lot of credibility because they were the, the strongest and most resolved fighters against fascism. A lot of people forget that, right? And so the U.S. and Britain intervened to, to actually install a fascist government in Greece after the war, again, in lieu of communists coming to power. And, and the U.S. meddled in elections in Italy and France to the same ends, again, because the communist parties there had all this credibility amongst the population and uh, could have won free elections there. But again, the U.S. Uh, would not allow that. Similarly, the U.S. Uh, helped prop up fascists in Japan, ironically, after World War II. The same people the U.S. had fought in World War II, the Japanese fascists, the U.S. turned around and partnered with them uh, in Korea, for example, and Vietnam right after the war to try to maintain colonialism over those two countries. In fact, you know, a lot of people don't know this, that uh, there were American uh, uh, soldiers and sailors who mutinied, for example, in Vietnam right after World War II because they were like, what are we doing fighting with these Japanese fascists? We just beat these people. And now we're working with them to try to keep down uh, the Vietnamese. So the hypocrisy, of course, surrounding all this is incredible. And as you say, now you kind of see a replay of this with, with not only Radio Liberty, of course, but also the mainstream Western media really giving cover to the fascists in Ukraine, right? I mean, and now it's it's just open, you know, where they're just openly supporting the Azov Battalion in Ukraine and writing these puff pieces about them, it, you know, and just either ignoring the fact that they are avowed Nazis or kind of excusing it. You know, and the Washington Post just had a story, a huge story, uh, really just glorifying these people. And so... Well, and that's the other say, thing I say in my article. You know, I mean, the, the thing, funny thing about Radio Liberty, it's probably less of, of a, an effective propaganda tool than the Western media because, you know, the Western media claims to be objective, right? The mainstream media like CNN and, um, you know, whatever, MSNBC, New York Times, NPR. And yet, really, they just are, are nothing but, but propaganda tools for the State Department in the same way Radio Liberty is, they're just not honest about it. I mean, Radio Liberty, at least, is open about the fact, hey, we're funded by the U.S. government. Yeah, we're pimping, you know, uh, U.S. government information. They're pretty honest, and at least so that people can kind of assess, assess it on that basis. But the more nefarious propaganda, again, is coming out of the press that claims to somehow be neutral arbiters of the truth, and, and that's really to me, even more scary and really has led to this very propagandized uh, U.S. population. 
Definitely. And, you know, the thing about these types of platforms like Radio Free Liberty, Radio Free Europe, I mean, this is state media. Like when you talk about going from being um, funded by the CIA to being funded by the U.S. government directly, um, I don't I don't know how that could be seen as anything but state media. And that's, of course, relevant today because uh, the U.S., uh, demonizes uh, the state media of other countries, particularly those that it sees as enemies, you know, whether it's Russia, China, Iran, or what have you. And so platforms associated with those governments um, are, are stigmatized and accused of being, you know, centers for misinformation and things like that, when in reality, um, a lot of these platforms make it a point to counter the narratives emanating from Washington. And you make an interesting um, point in your piece, Dan, um, because you make the argument that the, you know, the quote old Cold War really didn't end because the apparatus for the Cold War, which includes platforms like Radio Free Liberty in Europe and, you know, I think I should say institutions like uh, NATO as well. Um, the, the infrastructure for all that is still in place. These platforms uh, still operate. I mean, you know, I think that's one thing that a Radio Free Liberty and NATO have in common is that, you know, after the, the, the Soviet Union collapsed, I mean, they technically didn't have a reason to exist anymore, but yet and still they do. You know what I mean? And so to see this all <clears throat> as a network that's part and parcel of uh, an effort of really trying to maintain uh, the, the the unipolar world order under the control of the United States. And I think that that really is the point to uh, drive home and more than likely is why these platforms and these institutions still exist and operate. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, of course. And it is one of those things. Uh, you know, it's kind of the tail wagging the dog. I mean, when you maintain these institutions, these Cold War institutions, like you say, Radio Liberty, NATO, Voice of America, then you have to have a reason for them to exist, right? And and so, you know, um, in the end, you're looking for further conflicts. And, and again, with Russia, uh, it's clear they just decided, well, we're still against Russia. They're not communist anymore, but we're we still don't want them to be a power that is going to rise again, you know, and I think that is, and you see that, you know, now if you read or listen to some of the speeches Putin has given recently since the operations in Ukraine, he talks about this and he talks about the Russians' frustration that after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of communism, the Russians fully expected they would be welcomed back to the West and they would be part of Europe and they would you know, um, be part of the community of nations, you know, an equal partner in in the world and in the West. And that never happened. They were never invited back to the table. And uh, it's a great frustration of Russia. And then, of course, once the Ukraine operation started, you know, all this anti-Russian vitriol came out, you know, which was clearly there all along, but really it needed a spark just to be exposed. And again, it wasn't just anti-Russian government hatred. It was anti-Russian hatred. And the Russians, the Russian people are shocked by this, you know, that, that, that they, there's this hatred towards them, but it's a hatred that has existed for a long time, certainly going, going back to the Napoleonic Wars, but also certainly since the Russian Revolution of 1917. And um, again, it's institutions like NATO and Radio Liberty, that really stoked that anti-Russian 
sentiment, and it, it, it it's dangerous, and um, but very few see it as so. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, May 19th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also listen to us on sputnik.mave, M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. And we are streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, the Senate has voted to deliver more than $40 billion in humanitarian and new military assistance to Ukraine in a vote that uh, came down to uh, 86 to 11 and all opposing votes to this uh, support package coming from Republicans. And I want to note, according to NPR, this brings uh, U.S. spending on the war in Ukraine to more than one hundred million dollars per day. One hundred million dollars per day is what the U.S. government is spending on this war in Ukraine. I'm sorry, you said something, Jackie? No, I just per day? Per day, though. Ain't that crazy? Jesus. And uh, so, yeah, hashtag SOS USA. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Jared Ball 
a father, husband, professor of Africana Studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, the curator of imixwhatilike.org, the author of the book The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power, and the co-editor of A Lie of Reinvention, Correcting Manning Marables, Malcolm X. Dr. Ball, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. The pleasure is all ours, doctor. And of course, Dr. Ball, today is the 97th birthday of uh, Malcolm X, uh, just an exemplary uh, militant black organizer, a freedom fighter, uh, a true people-centered human rights uh, uh, advocate, Pan-African is someone who was born into the Pan-African tradition uh, with his Garveyite parents, a trend that followed him throughout his later political development. In a day that he also shares with uh, Vietnamese revolutionary leader Ho Chi Minh, uh, radical Japanese-American organizer Yuri Kochiyama, and the important black author Lorraine Hansberry. And, you know, I feel like there's always so much to say about Malcolm X and what his politics and what his really his life and his trajectory as well can tell us about our current political moment. And this seems particularly relevant, Dr. Ball, given the recent racist uh, terror attack, the shooting that took place uh, in Buffalo, New York, that left uh, uh, 10 people dead and how it is obviously part and parcel of a rising tide of violent fascism in the United States, one that is going completely um, unaddressed, basically, by the political mainstream in the United States, including the liberal wing of uh, the ruling class. And so knowing what we know about Malcolm's analysis of white supremacy his analysis of capitalism and his analysis on geopolitics. I mean, how do we situate the thinking and the work of a Malcolm X in a time such as this from your perspective? Well, first of all, I thought the whole point of supporting Ukraine to the tune of, as you were saying, a hundred million dollars a day was so that we could fight Nazis over there not to have to fight them here. And yet Buffalo demonstrates the frailty of that argument uh, or, or whatever versions of it were being promoted to support this nonsense. Um, but but again, I mean, it, uh, so, yeah, I, you know, so in terms of Malcolm X, I mean, the the the, the note I just wanted to that I made to myself as you were uh, asking that or phrasing that question was uh that I think the, the most important point I could make in uh, right now is that just to be clear, there are no mainstream political equivalents to where Malcolm X was uh, in his lifetime. So wherever anyone thinks they are, if they are attached to whatever purports to be the mainstream political uh, spectrum, 
Uh, they just have to recognize that Malcolm was far to the left of all of that. So uh, because already I've seen today just just uh, um, just even on on Twitter or elsewhere, just uh, uh, and it happens routinely, actually, certainly in the mainstream press, um, whenever they feel a need to at least acknowledge someone uh, like Malcolm is is that. Uh, he's mainstreamed. I mean, they certainly do it with King, and then they just mainstream the reference uh, by, you know, um, either either focusing on the Nation of Islam as the culprit, or focusing on Malcolm's transformation, uh, or of course reinvention, and uh, uh, and and certainly mainstream scholars, some of whom I've been critical of, have you know do the same thing as well by attempting to suggest that anything that is going on today in the mainstream political arena would be something that Malcolm would be supportive of or uh, uh, helped to build. Uh, and, uh, and 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 I, and I, so anyway, I just think it's important to point that out and to always remind people that the only reason we have Kamala Harris and Barack Obama and uh, uh, who apparently now, uh, uh, as, as Kim was, uh, Kim Brown, I was pointing out the other day, uh, supporting Tom Perez, and you know the, the only re- the only reason we have any of these folks to deal with uh, as political players is because Malcolm was assassinated and then subsequently, and uh, in, in, in perpetuity redefined uh, posthumously. So anyway, that's just the, the the first thoughts I was having as you you were asking the question. And you know what the the fact that you started your response with with the very sobering acknowledgement that there is nothing that exists on the mainstream state scale uh, close to anything that looks like what Malcolm X was organizing at the time of his death. I mean, I think people underestimate how serious Malcolm was about organizing. He was not organizing one organization at the time of his death, but two organizations at the time of his death and was organizing with all kinds of people who were really serious about freedom and liberation for oppressed people around the world and certainly particularly African people uh, in on the continent and throughout the diaspora. You know, Yuri uh, was one of those people, uh, undoubtedly. And I, I, I think, Dr. Ball, that I, I get kind of caught up in the things that that surprise me that we get caught up in in organizing where it doesn't strike me that Malcolm got caught up in those those things he didn't major in the minors so to speak and i think we do a lot of that so you know you having having thoroughly and and very effectively be debunked a very bad narrative about Malcolm X uh, in Manning Marable's book can you give people an idea, maybe not about everything, but the really high-level important stuff that Malcolm was able to avoid, sidestep, tell people not pay any attention to, that made him more effective in organizing, not one organization, again, folks, two, that maybe we really need to take to heart now in order to get somewhere on the same track that he was? Well, you know, while I appreciate uh, the compliments, I have I, I don't personally feel uh, that that 
that our attempt to debunk anything from Manning Marable has been uh, nearly as successful as we might have or I might have fantasized in the sense that uh, the mainstream, uh, I mean, it is it is um, sometimes hard to confront what I think for me, it's hard to sometimes confront what I think I've understood uh, um, indirectly. Uh, but when you see the machinery, uh, uh when I watch, when I, I, let me just speak for myself. When I watch the machinery uh, kick into gear and effectively, uh, largely marginalize an, an attempt, and to see just how it happens and who participates, it's on one level it's impressive, and on another level it's it's humbling. Uh, that to to you know same thing on another level by the way with the buying power argument it's it's remarkable to see the machinery suppress and marginalize and and again who participates uh, and something is in in someone as large a figure an important figure as Malcolm X the machinery works even you know harder um, uh, and 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 somewhat. And and to be fair, uh, while I appreciate your question, and I think largely Malcolm was able to overcome a lot of a lot of the the, the foibles in, in struggle. Uh, he wasn't always able to overcome them all. I mean, he did have an ego. I mean, I'm thinking even of our of our comrade Kamal Franklin's uh, essay and contribution to to our Alive Reinvention book. He points out himself that that Malcolm. Uh, had a shortcoming when with his own engagement with the mainstream press uh, and being happy to be in the in the limelight and to sometimes play along, particularly when in the beef with the Nation of Islam, in escalating beyond what was necessary. So, in some ways, in some ways, what what I, the way I would prefer to look at it at least is that we haven't done enough to learn the lessons that Malcolm was clearly learning in his own lifetime. So, so that is to say that while he may have at times uh, been publicly critical, of course, of the Big Six and other leadership, which is something clearly we see in hyper, you know, gear and in, in sometimes rightfully so in, in, in these YouTube and social media streets. Uh, um, he was also, uh, 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 you know, uh, um, highly caustic in his engagement with the nation and Elijah Muhammad in the press. Uh, and as, as some have pointed out in the white mainstream press, which is is certainly, I think, arguably a contradiction uh, and something that many of us in, our, in this struggle continue to, to slip into. Uh, in in you know from time to time, but 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 what we haven't done is learned again some of the lessons that he was learning, which is uh, how to better manage the public image. Um, you know, as Zach Condo has pointed out, the even the famous picture of him at the gun with the at the window with the gun uh, was a uh, uh, positive propaganda. I mean, that was an intentionally taken shot, meant inten- you know specifically to show the Nation of Islam uh, that that he was not afraid and that he was willing to you know engage in armed self defense. And of course, beyond that. Uh, the, the the picture symbolically has been meant to be, I think, for Malcolm and and certainly many others, as a symbol, more broadly speaking, of a, of a willingness to engage in armed self-defense uh, or beyond uh, in terms of guerrilla warfare, which Malcolm did in his own time, in, you know, uh, uh, engage in, in, in discussions of and interest in. Um, but anyway, so I'm, I'm just trying to say that the long, long story longer, I guess, is, is that uh, that that. 
I don't think Malcolm was fully able to overcome all of the struggles that I think are uh, involved in the complicated work of building, as you said, multiple organizations amidst the most hostile of, of situations in the most uh, surveilled uh, and and violent and well-resourced uh, society that history has ever seen, human history has ever seen. Uh, uh, he wasn't always perfect and he wasn't always able to overcome everything that was thrown at him. Uh, but as he was clearly learning and evolving uh, and leaving us a, a sort of guidepost to continue on, I think not enough of us have picked up on that beyond, you know, our symbolic uh, routine references and, and, and accolades thrown at Malcolm. So uh, these are, these are, and, and I love the question, actually, this is, this is a specific aspect of Malcolm that I don't think it's talked about on honestly and openly enough. And I don't think we've learned enough lessons um, uh, since he was he, he was assassinated and he was clearly learning them himself. Yeah. And, and I actually think we get a deeper appreciation of a Malcolm X when we understand him in that way, uh, Dr. Ball. And I don't and, and I don't mean, you know, quote unquote, humanizing him uh, in the way that uh, the Manning Marable book sort of claimed to, but in truth, just sort of understanding Malcolm's life. And I think particularly the end of his life within its proper context, because this was a person who though brilliant and though who very capable, uniquely capable even, um, was still in development and was still figuring, uh, certain things out. And, you know, was very obviously working through some deeply uh, uh, personal issues as it concerns uh, the, the, the nation of Islam. And so it, it's interesting to think about it in the context of our current moment when we go over this attempt in recent years to whitewash and de-radicalize and to really skew and obscure the true politics and trajectory of a Malcolm X. And of course, you know, you are a part of this effort to, you know, push back against it with uh, the Live of reinvention, which is a great book. I think, you know, if, if people are going to read the Manning Marable book, then, then I think you should read a Live of reinvention immediately afterward. And I actually, I think you'll have a better appreciation for it. And that was just one, of course. I mean, there was the, uh, you know, a real not reinvented book uh, by Herb Boyd and, and others, I think, around uh, similar lines. And, you know, we saw people like, you know, Peniel Joseph uh, attempt to do a similar thing with uh, Kwame Ture. And so we're seeing this attempt at trying to remake and reshape and really have a revisionist history. I think it's accurate to call it that to have a revisionist history that these militant revolutionary internationalists, because that's what they are. Um, this, this attempt to do that, to have that, uh, uh, whitewashing effort to me, takes on a whole new sort of, uh, meaning and a whole new level of relevance when we look to today where, you know, in a situation where Americans already have a poor grasp of history even worse so when it comes to, you know, militant, uh, you know, like radical black history or black movement history or things like that. And these uh, the struggles around so-called uh, uh, critical race theory and just uh, uh, all these sorts of, uh, of things going on in our political moment. To me, it makes that 
a whitewashing effort, even though it's often done by uh, white scholars, excuse me, by black scholars and black authors, it makes it that much more dangerous because uh, for me, it, 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 it creates this danger of pushing us further away from the politics of a Malcolm or a Kwame Torre, which can disincline us towards, you know, the kind of organizing that we may need to do. And so if generations of people can be convinced that somehow, you know, Malcolm X was in reality like a progressive Democrat who, you know, would have uh, supported and been down with uh, Barack Obama or the neoliberal establishment or anything like that. If you can be made to believe that or if generations can be made to believe that, um, well, then I feel like that will fundamentally impact how they think about political activity or if they think about political activity, because it will have the sort of same end result of just funneling people back into the uh, Democratic Party tent and ultimately not challenging these fundamental institutions uh, doing the kind of work that Malcolm um, uh, uh, dedicated his life to. And so, uh, Dr. Ball, I'm just wondering how you situate this uh these attempts to really de-radicalize these uh uh uh, black radical figures how you situate that within this uh sort of you know cultural war moment if you will around things like uh critical race theory you know as uh i mean as absurd as that whole thing has been well i mean this is this was exactly why i wanted to to engage the argument around how Malcolm was being remembered and re-promoted because his analysis was being absented to the point where even as we could unfortunately predict that uh, uh, what we saw in Buffalo the other day was going to happen and is is going to happen again uh, and perhaps with increasing frequency, that the response, the the uh, the interpretations, the frames, the analyses, the the, the uh, again the the reactions to it that are being promoted back to the very victims inter- uh, or survivors of these these terror uh, acts of terror, are the the softest, <laughs> most neoliberal con- uh, and conservative, uh, uh, despite their presentation. Uh, in the mouths or from the pens or keyboards or some of the the more uh, nominally left and progressive black voices, uh, um, creating the kind of confusion that Malcolm was so uh, effective at uh, cutting through. So uh, I don't like I wouldn't certainly want to try to predict what 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 Malcolm X's reaction or response would have been to in terms of of, of offering a, 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 an analysis of, of Buffalo. But uh, uh, the incessant, at least as I'm seeing it, uh, blame of Buffalo on the Republican Party and Tucker Carlson and Fox's Fox News's promotion of replacement theory uh, is, I think, part of the the problem that I'm talking about in terms of of why it was so important from the perspective of those in power to have Malcolm gotten rid of in his lifetime, and then how the machinery has worked so hard to effectively marginalize, if not fully erase, his politics, even as the name may be remembered as as much as almost any other. Uh, so that it's it's happening right now. Um, uh, so that in, instead of black people being encouraged, for instance, 
to uh, organize more effectively and militantly to bring this state to its knees in, in its current form, Black people are being encouraged to respond by voting for the Democratic Party in the midterms and going forward. It's already happening. <laughs> the, so, so uh, that is the the this the sole focus on the right wing and the Republican Party, which is of course the easy thing to do, which is of course correct in terms of the 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 the, the, the you know the horrific content coming from that community, but that is not what is causing what happened in Buffalo, at least not in and of itself, absent all of the policies supported by the Democrats as well, absent all of the policies supported by the so-called liberal and left wing, who Malcolm was, of course, one of the more effective critics of, uh, one who would have not allowed a black bourgeoisie to operate so effectively in a vacuum as it does today, and certainly would not have allowed uh, a supposed white left or liberal community to do the same. Uh, that that sort of biting analysis has been pushed so far to the margins and is is held up, uh, unfortunately, by, you know, some some of the, the, the you know, <laughs> um, less reputable uh, spokespersons of black politics uh, or, or, or a left or African centered politics uh, in social media uh, spaces uh, where even BAM can't be heard today you know so that's that's anyway so i hope i was clear to some extent but that's that is uh um very much how i'm seeing what's going on as i try to uh you know understand um you know consider buffalo and what's happening today uh and malcolm on his birthday Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Dr. Jared Ball. And Dr. Ball, we've been discussing the... Uh, uh, ongoing importance of the politics and ideologies and life, really, of uh, a Malcolm X in our current political moment. And it actually leads me to a broader question on something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And that's black men and political belonging, right, here in the United States. And what really had me thinking about this was, and... <laughs> This is not someone who we really uh, talk about on the show, but 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 I think this is relevant because of the recent death of Kevin Samuels. And for people who don't know who Kevin Samuels is, this is a black man who had a uh, very popular YouTube show and he really gained popularity by just, I mean, dumping on women, basically, and black women specifically specifically. 
And uh, he's probably the first person to successfully cash in on the the black manosphere. You know, the manosphere is like this uh, online uh, he-man, woman-haters club, uh, a macho thing. And so Samuels was sort of the first person to really uh, lay hold to that and to monetize it. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, with his, you know, recent death, which I think was sudden, it's my understanding he had some kind of, you know, uh, a medical condition. I literally saw people, grown men, at least two, who tattooed Kevin Samuels on their body. Including wow. this rapper named uh, Bandman Kevo or Kevo. I'm, I'm familiar with his name. I'm not familiar with his music. And the reason why I bring this up, and I don't, I don't even want to get into a whole thing about Samuels himself. I, I actually, in a way, I think that's beside the point. But why I think it's relevant when we talk about black men and political belonging, it's just like there's clearly this feeling of dispossession and resentment and being uh, uh, disaffected amongst uh, elements of black men in the United States of America and in the absence of a mass revolutionary organization uh, to bring them in and that has the same sort of, you know, reach or at least a similar reach to uh, a Kevin Samuels, which is, is difficult for a number of reasons. Um, in the absence of that, it seems like we see uh, black men heading down reactionary paths sometimes and not just, you know, uh, subscribing to the views of someone like Samuels, but, you know, joining uh, these uh, reactionary groups, you know, uh, Hebrew Israelites, uh, Adolf, all these sorts of things. Right. And so uh, I'm just wondering sort of your, your, your thoughts on that, because I, I've heard you make, you know, similar arguments in, I think, slightly different context about, you know, why black people perhaps hold certain politics or end up in certain political spaces and things like that. And it seems to me that if there was uh, a political home uh, for this element, then it could perhaps uh, tamp down on cats being into this sort of thing. Now, of course, like I say, Buddy was just a YouTuber, but there's a reason why, you know, he had the appeal that he had uh, to the people that he had appealed to. You know what I mean? And so, you know, uh, I, I'm really just sort of, you know, spitballing a little bit on what I've been thinking about this, Dr. Ball. But I mean, how do you situate that in thinking about someone like Malcolm X, who was not only an organizer, but literally an institution builder? I mean, he was responsible for so much growth within the nation of Islam uh, while he's there. And his success, of course, was a, a part of the issue in terms of, you know, internal jealousy and things like that. But, you know, I, I'm going to stop rambling here, Dr. Ball, and I'll let you get a word in here, Edgewad. No, I mean, it's cool. I think I, it, it, it's... So on the one hand, I, I, I was thinking that it's perfect because uh, as I, I look up the history of the concept of the alpha wolf... Uh, and see that it's largely been a, a debunked concept conceived of by a white man who himself debunked his own concept with a 40-year increased study since the late 60s, early 70s, when it was first popularized or first used. Uh, um, uh, in that same window, this is the same vacuum uh, 
caused by the assassination of Malcolm X, into which who whose focus was not the individual behaviors of so-called alpha or beta males and uh, 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 the quote-unquote leftovers of, of black women who are 35 and over uh, and single, uh, but who was concerned with political power and the community and, in fact, the world uh, and, and revolution for the world. Uh, he's assassinated, and into this vacuum come the likes of uh, people like Kevin Samuels, uh, who I, I don't pretend to know anything about. I have never watched any of his shows. I've only seen him referenced on other people's shows or have read a few things since he's he's passed away. And then, of course, saw him on the recent episode of Atlanta, which is, which is its own yeah. uh nightmare of of contradictions but but you know so so i i just say all that to say that i i, I think it's fascinating that that it's in in some ways tragically perfect that malcolm is assassinated this brilliant black radical revolutionary nationalist internationalist etc and so forth he's assassinated and we are left to deal with the leftovers of bad politics that themselves are based on white man's debunked theories of alphaness that he himself debunked. So, I mean, it's so, so Kevin, you know, people, Kevin Samuels and the like are running around here promoting concepts of alphahood that are again, based on a white man's failed, his own debunked theories based on wolves. And and it's 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 got plenty of room to run because, again, Malcolm is assassinated. Many others like him are assassinated or turned into political prisoners, uh, and the politics that they all deal with are marginalized and suppressed, or at best reflected in um, lesser forms uh, on some popular scale. So. It, it, it's 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 all a, a tragedy, uh, you know. Uh, on, I guess, on top of tragedies. Wow, that's that's actually something that I hadn't thought of, but I see the point that Sean is making, and I see I see the draw. And I remember Mr. Lukeman and I having this conversation about this person named Tommy Sotomayor, who was the precursor, I guess to Kevin Samuels. Tommy Tommy Sotomayor was like Kevin Samuels without the vocabulary and the suits. That really, it was all the black woman hate and without the catchphrases of, you know, high value man and high value woman. And and he and I had this conversation about Sotomayor and then he he did find Kevin Samuels stuff and he's like, what is this guy? Is this, this guy is a, is, a, is a dressed up Tommy Sotomayor. But but we did have the conversation about how black men are exhibiting this kind of fear of being replaced by some type of of something other than black maleness. And and the problem is the way they define black manhood, right? And 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 I'm probably gonna make some people angry with this comparison, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make it anyway. I think that the 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 existential identity crisis that I think I'm seeing in black some black men flocking to these kinds of folks is almost akin to 
white people and their weird terror of replace with replacement theory, right? Like white people are are terrified that they are going to replace be replaced by all the brown people in the world. And and of course all the brown people in the world are they're not as genetically, you know, desirable as white people, they're inferior intellectually, culturally, all that kind of stuff, right? In the same way, Dr. Ball, it seems to me that people, that Black folks, Black men who flock to the Samuels types are also the same Black men who are are unreasonably bothered by gay men, who are unreasonably bothered by, you know, men who are not quote unquote high achievers. And I feel like that's almost like the same kind of irrational but very present fear of being replaced by an undesirable representation of whatever it is that you think you are or should be. I I don't, does that make any sense or, or do you see those kinds of correlations between the Kevin Samuels acolytes and, you know, the, 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 the racist white people in replacement theory? I actually think you you're making a very good point, and that uh, I mean, so so certainly there are always strands of. First of all, there are needs, of course, for uh, black men to uh, collectively, like most groups of people, um, uh, find ways to improve uh, certain patterns of behavior. There's always there's always some need for any group to to need a little work we all need a little 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 uh, uh uh sculpting refinement right but uh um then there's also there are also trends where within the uh black and broader political set of sets of struggles where uh cis and heterosexuality are being held up for criticism uh, and there are some who feel a certain defensiveness around this. Uh, I've been even in some circles of uh, uh, where cishet black men are trying to organize among themselves a way to engage the broader political spaces uh, uh, without feeling marginalized and without... Uh, impeding in a negative way on uh, uh, those who identify differently. So you know, so I, I'm seeing anyway. So I'm seeing a lot of, of of things happening all at once, and then one one overlap that that we that I should, definitely would want to consider is that the commercial media arena, uh, the black commercial media arena does the same as the white commercial media arena because, of course, they're all supported by the same entities uh, and chasing the same ad revenue. Uh, but they do the same thing in the black spaces of um, often promoting conservative uh, and reactionary politics, more broadly speaking. So Kevin Samuels would absolutely, um, and I know has absolutely been on, you know, the Breakfast Club and this and that and these other outlets where he is pom- prominently promoted to a black audience that is uh, itself again going through all that is going on and looking for solutions, looking for answers, and here he is being promoted into a vacuum. Uh, where where that tendency that uh, or that does exist would be stoked 
and fed and encouraged. Um, so I absolutely, you know, I absolutely see that, uh, see a, a, a certain parallel there. Uh, and it's something, you know, obviously that needs to be considered. It's it's certainly not true that even the, the most black radical spaces um, have uh, uh, come to terms with, with the, the struggle being brought in to include, you know, specific focus on LGBTQ plus, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, the way that uh, Samuels was able to to pierce the mainstream the way that he did, I think, is noteworthy in, in a troublesome way. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Dr. Jared Ball is here. And real quick, we've got a couple of calls on the line here, but I wanted to say something uh, briefly, and uh, maybe we can circle back to it. You know, just for the sake of clarity, because when we have this discussion about black men and political belonging and what is sometimes the appeal of reactionary uh, uh, platforms and groups. I want to be clear that the root of all this, in my humble opinion, is in fact the capitalist system itself, because that is where the origins of these uh, backward ideas around women even emerged from. It was this capitalist system that made women property. And of course, when you talk about black women, indigenous women, uh, uh, immigrant women, all these poor working and oppressed women that were in this country and came to this country in 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 different ways, uh, then that becomes, you know, uh, uh, almost uh, doubly so. It sort of doubles down with the sort of um, intervening other dynamics of class and race and things like that. And see, black men are a part of U.S. society and as such are, uh, you know, vulnerable to the opinions of the dominant society as much as anyone in it. And the reason I want to take a moment to say that is because too often when people have these conversations about black men and politics, it's, it's, it's discussed in a pathologizing way. And I think far too many of us, perhaps even without knowing it, sort of feed into these old uh, uh, tropes and stereotypes as it pertains to black men and function from that uh, sometimes I think without even realizing it. So I think that ultimately the uh, uh, remedy for a lot of these uh, backward social attitudes is, is a new system altogether. But like I say, we've got a couple of callers on the line here. First up is Alex. Tell us what's on your mind. I'll try and keep, I'll try and keep this quick. I, you guys are setting off a lot of different fireworks in my head talking about these different things. And wondering um two things one do you feel that that this idea this notion of kind of the traditional patriarchal maleness is reinforced in much the same way that white supremacy is reinforced just sort of woven through every facet of colonial society capitalist society and that's kind of like that it's not just a particular problem to black men it's men in general who have a problem with 
this system because it's given them challenging, you know, requires a certain like self-assessment and, and understanding that you you need to sacrifice certain things you consider, you know, your power position. Also, I guess on top of that, just do we underestimate the power of media? Because as of right now, a lot of what I'm hearing is anytime you mention any other source, it's, you know, this is Russian propaganda, but people, I don't understand how people think that Russia has the footprint that say just even the U S media has in order to create narratives. And I'm just kind of curious if you think in general, people kind of have an attitude towards media sort of dismissal kind of the way that people say, you know, advertisement doesn't work on me when in reality, there's so many things going on that affect you, how you view things. And our society is, is determined largely by the ruling class narratives that get elevated because they reinforce that, that idea. Uh, and I appreciate your time. Thanks. Well, thank you, Alex. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Dr. Ball, uh, your response to our other caller who was uh, making a point about, uh, I suppose, the connection between patriarchy and white supremacy. Well, um, and, and, and yes, the short answer is yes. I think patriarchy is promoted and encouraged, though I don't think um, we can. I'm not comfortable with saying all men and, and without clarifying that uh, black men certainly do not hold a position of power akin to white men in the society. But um, uh, but it's certainly encouraged. Uh, patriarchal divisions are certainly encouraged. Uh, all forms of divisions are encouraged, I should say. Uh, and that is also in part done by a media system that I do think the caller is right in suggesting, or at least raising as a question, is not uh, or are not considered uh, appropriately for their effectiveness. And uh, though I understand that that it's not everybody's cause or profession to study this, but if any if anyone ever does, it's it the amount of literature and money and research done into uh, communication specifically for the purpose of shaping public opinion is infinite. Uh, and and been proven to be and demonstrated repeatedly to be of infinite value to those in power. Uh, and I'll continue to argue that this society has seen a media system more pervasive, penetrative, uh, um, and effective than any in world history. Yeah, and Jackie, you know, I think what Dr. Ball here is raising is important because he's absolutely correct that, you know, uh, black men do not have the institutional power at the state level uh, under a white supremacist system. Now, um, in a interpersonal sense, uh, in a community sense, with uh, community institutions like churches and, and schools and, and things like this, do we see these uh, 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 attitudes and dynamics spring up? Sure you do. But again, these are the uh, dominant attitudes in society and when you which doesn't excuse them, but only make the point just to note that this is not, you know, some like genetic predisposition of uh, 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 patriarchy, and misogyny and black men or something like that. That's you know, that that's just uh, ridiculous and a part of that pathology that I was uh, uh, thinking of. And it's sort of like I remember when people. uh would go around saying things like, you know, uh, like black men are the white people of black people. And just these, yeah, you know, just these completely like ridiculous decontextualized things that I, I don't think critically take into account our particular experience in this country and in this system and how that sort of uh, impacts a lot of things. But but I'm curious your thoughts on all that. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about how 
the the people who engage in this, you know, kind of uh, uh, fandom with people like Samuels um, and and you know Sotomayor before him, they they do it. They frame their use for people, women in particular, in terms of their quote unquote value, and this leads me to believe that. What people are expressing is a deep indoctrination of what capitalism does to people, right? What, how capitalism skews everything in our life to the point where we have to put a literally a monetary value on the kind of people we are in a relationship with. So if the people we are in relationship do not fulfill a specific kind of value that is uh, realized by particular specific roles that they must fulfill in order to uh, realize that value, then they're worthless, right? And I think that is uniquely capitalistic in the way everything is commodified, right? So I, I think that, you know, we're, we're not even talking about I think that, yes, the, the patriarchy is a part of it, but I think the overarching pathology behind all of this mess that Kevin Samuels uh, are unleashed into the world, that, that people and whatever else people will come up with, because he won't be the last, ultimately, I think this is what capitalism does to people. It, it convinces us that people are only worth anything if they can, quote unquote, bring a particular value to our lives and our relationships. And that always fits into these white, white supremacist patriarchal ideas of what women can and cannot do and should and should not do in order to be valuable to men. That's and I, that I, I just thought that was really interesting that, you know, Samuel's whole shtick was high value men and high value women. And, and people kind of miss that. This dude was literally putting a dollar value on human beings. And that that's just trash. Yeah. And see, and that's what I mean by capitalist culture fueling all of this, because like you say, Jackie, the idea of a high value man is, you know, based on these, you know, materialistic, superficial trappings of quote unquote success um, that stems directly from uh, uh, capitalist individualism. But we have another caller. We're going to squeeze in here. Ben, tell us what's on your mind. Oh, yeah, I would like to uh, panel. Uh, to discuss the uh, moral authority impact militarism, you know, psychological warfare attack by uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, uh, overcoming fear, letting the federal government and the racists know that uh, we're not going to fear you, even though we even though we may be killed. And I think it was a psychological warfare tactic that. Um, that both Malcolm and Dr. King actually won. And I, I also want to know why hasn't that brilliance been, uh, a performance been passed down to uh, the new generations, uh, psychological warfare tactic of overcoming fear and of their, we're in your face and we're not going to be afraid of you. You're a man just like, like we are. And uh, I'll take the panel's uh, answer off the air. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ben. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Interesting question. Your thought, Dr. Ball. Part of it is I think we're just in a moment of uh, uh, of of defeat, 
and I was just looking at George Jackson, who I think his criticism of Malcolm for for uh, telling his security to stand down is is, is 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 correct. But George Jackson was talking about we have to be real. We have to be realists. Uh, and it, defeat is not, you know, to be pessimistic. Acknowledging defeat is not to be pessimistic, but is to, to be clear and to regroup and get ready to fight again. And that's the, the point we're in. My generation, I'm born in 71. My generation was raised uh, with, with popular political figures like Jesse Jackson uh, and Al Sharpton. The, these are the people that stepped into the vacuum of Malcolm and Martin's assassinations and the, the exile of Asada Shakur and the political imprisonment of of, of her other comrades, Sundi Adekoli, thankfully he's apparently getting out and so on and so forth. But but that vacuum was created. Uh, and on top of that, a media system evolved uh, to promote uh, the worst of the worst to, to us uh, for a long time. We have to remember the fifth tenet of the counterintelligence program uh, targeting black people specifically said that, that tactics must be evolved to make sure black youth don't become radical. And that's what my generation walked into. And look at the, look at the leadership that has come up under them. Uh, and the, 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 the popular leadership advocating uh, uh, or, or promoting itself or being promoted as black leadership today. What do they advocate? There is, again, there's, that's why I started off by saying there is nothing in the popular political landscape that approximates where, where Malcolm was at the time of his death. So the, the encouragement for, for people to pick up that mantle uh, it can't be easily developed. Uh, it, it, it's going to take more time to develop it. Malcolm was himself a product of organization and and international radical political movement. That 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 context does not exist currently in the same way. Uh, we have to build that context, and then other Malcolms uh, and 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 Asadas and et cetera will emerge. Yeah, definitely. And you raised something very important, which was, you know, to the question of, you know, why do we feel like maybe we don't always see uh, the same sort of thing from a Malcolm or Martin maybe uh, uh, today? And as you note, Dr. Ball, I mean, it was a very deliberate effort and campaign to separate particularly young black people. And this is noted, I believe, in, in Cointelpro, too, but to particularly try to separate uh young black people to, to make these radical figures seem unappealing and to even make them seem dangerous because both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were murdered in public, shot to death. Right. And you know, that, that has a serious impact, I think mentally, psychologically on a people throughout uh, the years. And so it, it, it puts this, in people's heads like well if i go too far over the line if i step too far out of the mainstream even if i'm correct uh, uh, i could be in mortal danger and therefore you know i'll reel it in maybe i'll you know get a blue check be a talking head on you know msnbc or something or whatever you know go down the whole uh sort of typical liberal influencer um path if you will right like the path of uh uh least resistance um, but the moral authority question, I think, is is interesting and I think important, because when, when you look at King and Malcolm, you're talking about two men who had the conviction of their faith and their politics. And for them, there was no separating, you know, one a Christian and one a Muslim. But I think they were they were very similar in that way. These were devout men. And uh, one thing that I wanted to get into today about Malcolm, I don't think we'll have time to with three minutes left is 
even beyond his political and ideological contribution, which was great and which was deep and which we should cherish, it's it's the personal example of a Malcolm X that I think we should really give a critical study to as well. Why? Because this is a man who was disciplined, who only slept, I've read, like five hours a day, only had one meal a day, was deeply serious, was deeply well-informed, well-studied, and who had a sense of duty with the work that he did. I mean, this is someone who took a vow of poverty, basically, to uh, take that role with the Nation of Islam going around the country, building up the organization and uh, uh, things like that. And so you look at that as opposed to some people today who are presented to us as movement people, but who in reality are just brands. They're another commodity to be bought and sold. And the, uh, you know, the reason why uh, they're able to do that is because what they're putting forth, though it may be wrapped in radical sounding rhetoric, in reality is not challenging in any real way to these fundamental systems of capitalism, white supremacy, and what have you um, uh, uh, in that way. And so I feel like a lot of us, when we think about uh, Malcolm X, beyond his quotes, beyond his impressive image and his impressive life, I think we have to consider how he comported himself, right? And how he operated and how he carried himself, uh, I think is so important as that is also, I think, an aspect and has an impact on how we operate in the movement and uh, uh, how we continue to build. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. I want to thank Dr. Jared Ball so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with another new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.